There's a couple other happenings in the church. You can check those out at the information table. And there's some free caramel corn that was specifically supposed to be for dads, but anybody can have it. Um, Or else I'm going to eat it all week long. So thank you. Just empty those canisters back there, all right? We are continuing to cruise through the wisdom writings in the Old Testament portion of the Bible today, the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. I can't even get through Proverbs. We haven't even started Ecclesiastes. Today we're going to look at a message out of Proverbs chapter 19 that has to do, ironically on Father's Day, it has to do with women and the word obey, but not together. Okay, so don't freak out on me right now. You'll see, okay? And it's a message entitled, Women Rock and a Great Four-Letter Word. So let's start with Women Rock. This is out of Proverbs chapter 19. 19 verse 14. Houses and wealth are inherited or a gift from parents, but a prudent wife, or some of your Bible translations say a good wife is a gift from the Lord. All right. This is a very cool proverb. It's actually directed towards men. And it's saying, hey, men, you can get some great gifts from your parents. You can get wealth. You can get houses. Those are great gifts. But God is like the ultimate secret Santa. He really knows how to give good gifts. And one of the good gifts he can give you is a good wife. Now, let me unpack this for a moment, okay? When some people first start to read the Bible, they start off in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, which is natural to do. Not the best idea. I would suggest you start in Matthew. You, but that's okay. They start in the book of Genesis and they don't even read for very long when suddenly they think to themselves, wow, this ancient scripture, this ancient spiritual text seems to be very male-centered and even sexist at times. There's a reason for that. It is male-centered and sexist at times, okay? Let me explain that. The Bible was predominantly written down by men who lived in a patriarchal society. And in ancient Hebrew culture, when this proverb we just read was actually written, males and females did not have equal footing. They did not have equal status. And by the time of Jesus, things had even gotten worse. By the time Jesus walked the earth, women weren't allowed to be, um, give testimony in courts because they weren't considered to be a reliable witness. You couldn't count on anything they said. According to them, not me. Don't look at me like that. Not my idea, okay? The second thing is many of them were illiterate because it was considered a waste of time and resources to educate a woman. And then here's a biggie too. When Jesus fed the 5,000. It was actually a much bigger group, but it was recorded as the miracle of feeding the 5,000 and another time the miracle of um, feeding the 4,000. It was 5,000 and 4,000 because they only counted the men because in this culture, counting the women and and kids wasn't something you did because they weren't worthy to be counted. Oh my goodness, okay? So these people were being heavily influenced by the Greek or Hellenistic culture, Socrates, the famous Greek philosopher and teacher, he actually said that here's how it goes. There are animals and there are men, and then somewhere in the middle is women. And I thought, okay, so what you're saying is women aren't cows, but they're kind of cow adjacent. That's what he was saying. I'm sure he had a great marriage, okay? You get the picture. There are sections of the Bible when if you're honest with yourself, you'll read them and they reflect the current culture of the time and the status, the low status that women had. But upon further examination, when you continue to make your way through the Bible, there are some verses that display a very progressive and positive view of women. For example, the first chapter in the Bible 
Genesis chapter 1, it's the beginning of this creation poem where God speaks things into existence. And it starts off with chaos, and then it moves to good, and then it moves to really good, culminating in the creation of women. Women were like God's piece de la resistance there, the final brush stroke on his masterpiece. That's why so many great works of art are of women, because women are so beautiful. They're like the pinnacle of God's creation, whereas men... We shouldn't be seen in direct light, okay, most of the time, all right? So Genesis 1 elevates the status of women. Second one is the proverb we just read. In this proverb, Lady Wisdom, remember wisdom's personified as a woman. Lady Wisdom is saying, hey, a wife is a good gift. A wife isn't a ball and chain that that drags you into an existence that's totally joyless. A wife isn't a wet noodle that has no opinion, no brain, no voice. No, a wife is something that's good, that enriches your life. Then along comes Jesus, and he just blows the roof off of this whole issue, and he completely elevates the status of women in this patriarchal culture. Starting with this, let's look at Luke chapter 8, just verses 1 through 3. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, the twelve male disciples, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had been cast out. Somebody counted. I thought that was interesting. Let's see how many demons come out of her. One, two, three. Okay, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of, the <coughs> out of their own means. Okay? Now, this is interesting. So what's happening here is Jesus was traveling around on a preaching tour. He was going from village to village and town to town, and there was a big cohort with him. And in this group, there were men and women. But check this out. In verse 3, it mentions a woman named Joanna, the wife of Chusa. And if you're reading through the Bible, you can easily just read that and not think twice about it. But Chusa was an amazing guy. He was actually the house manager of Herod, who was a king in the area. And actually, it was called Herod Antipas was his official name. Herod Antipas was this wicked, evil, cruel man, but he was also crazy rich, like Bill Gates and Phil Knight have a love child kind of rich, that kind of rich, okay? So that would have made Chusa, as his household manager, incredibly wealthy. Well, how was some of his wealth being spent? It was being spent by his wife, Joanna, who was bankrolling the ministry of Jesus. She was basically the CFO of Jesus. This is where it gets really crazy. Then later on in the same book, Jesus is warned by a group of people, hey, you got to get out of this area because Herod, the same Herod, Herod Antipas, wants to kill you. Jesus had been growing in popularity. That made Herod, as a king, jealous. He felt like his kingdom was threatened because Jesus was being called the new king. And so he wanted to kill Jesus. So here's what's going on. Herod is trying to kill Jesus while simultaneously, unbeknownst to him, He is also bankrolling the very ministry of Jesus whom he is trying to kill because he's paying Chusa. Chusa's giving some money to his wife, Joanna, and Joanna is giving it all. Jesus, this is so great. So Jesus is elevating the status of women because women are playing a vital role in the ministry that he's about. And then there's Mary. I love this story in John chapter 12. Mary and Martha, two sisters, are throwing a dinner party in honor of Jesus. And when you read the story, 
Martha's doing all the work. She's being a busy hostess, doing all the work that it requires to throw a big dinner party for a a great amount of people. Mary appears to be the lazy one because all it says of her is she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And when you first read the story, you're going, get off your duff, Mary, and help your sister out, okay? You're not a millennial? Come on, do some work. Sorry, that's a low blow. Um, So do some work, but that's not the case. See, that phrase, sitting at the feet, was a euphemism. It was a common phrase used to describe a disciple of a rabbi. There were lots of traveling rabbis at the time, Jesus being one. And disciples would sit at the feet of a rabbi and listen to their teaching and ingest their teaching, but also they would copy their way of life. A disciple was someone a rabbi looked at and said, this person's got what it takes. They got the right stuff. They can teach like I teach. They can live like I live. They can love like I love. They can become a leader like I'm a leader. And at the time of Jesus, it was unheard of for any of the other rabbis to have a woman as a disciple. But in describing Mary as someone who sat at the feet of Jesus, what this story is saying is she was one of Jesus' disciples. Jesus gave her that high position, that place, that authority, that, that role in his ministry and in his life. It was an amazing story. It would have blown the people away at the time. He was the only one doing that kind of thing. So it's important when you read the Bible, don't just break it up to bite-sized chunks. you got to see it in its entirety because it's this evolving story, this unfolding narrative. So yeah, there are a lot of things when you read the Scripture that are off-kilter and downright offensive. There are verses to this day, and I've read the Bible through many times, that I read a verse and I go, why is that in there? Who put that in the Bible? Why did that make the cut? Okay? But that's okay. Some things do need to be changed, and they do change when you read through the Bible in its entirety. Let me list a few. For example, our view of God. When you first start to read the Bible, most of the people viewed God like all the other area gods around them. They viewed God as some distant deity that was emotionally unstable and angry all the time. And he has this killer surveillance system and he's constantly looking at you and he's waiting for you to step out of line so he can bust you and rain down problems and trials and and difficulties and pain in your life. Oh, look at those people, they're obeying they have my favor and blessing. Those people are not obeying. I'm going to unleash hell on them, basically. That kind of thinking is not only wrong, but it's a lot of pressure. But then you look at the Bible and towards the time of Jesus, we don't have this harsh view of God anymore. Instead, Jesus refers to him as our loving father, as Abba Father. So people's view of God had progressed. And then there's violence. You read the first part of the Bible and you're thinking, they use violence is an answer to everything. Hey, we got some enemies. I know. Let's slaughter them all and then tell everybody God told us to do it. Let's do that. Let's use violence as an answer. And then by the time of Jesus, Jesus is going, no, that's not how I want you to live. I actually want you to love your enemies. Violence isn't the answer. Love is. And then there's the temple. In the beginning part of the Bible, you could locate God. He was discovered inside the temple. And by the time of Jesus, no way, not even close. In fact, at the resurrection of Jesus, the veil that separated the most holy place of the temple was torn in half. 
It was torn in half. And that sent us two messages. One, it said that we now have access to the most holy place. We have access to the very presence of God. And number two, not only can we get in, God can get out. And now the whole world is a temple. All ground is holy ground. We can come into collision points with God everywhere, not just inside some building. Then there's tribalism. You read through the first part of the Bible, and it was all about different tribes, and it was all a us-versus-them mentality. God loves us, but he doesn't love them. And then at the time of Jesus, we get John 3.16 saying, For God so loved the world. It was all about inclusion, not tribalism. And then lastly... It's about people's view of women. It started off very bad, but by towards the end of the Bible in the book of Galatians, one of the last books to be written, the Apostle Paul says this, and this would have just blown people's mind at the time. This is so radical. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. That's the first thing that would have flabbergasted them. No tribalism here, okay? Neither slave nor free, so there's no social status that divides us from God either. Nor is there male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. So the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, you've had a low view of women for like thousands of years now, and now I want to tell you, in Jesus We're all on a level ground right there. Oh, it was so great, okay? So you might ask when you're reading the Bible, well, what took them so long to change? Well, what took them so long is change always takes a long time. Anne Lamott, in one of her books, she quotes one of her friends, and he says this about change. This is how we make important changes. Barely, poorly, and slowly. That is so true. I mean, change didn't happen overnight in the Bible because it doesn't ever happen overnight. Think about the United States. When we made a decision to change how we viewed people from other countries, when we made the decision to abolish slavery, did it happen overnight? No, it took decades in an incredibly bloody civil war, and quite frankly, we're still dealing with the racist views that caused this abomination of slavery in the first place. But back to women. It's 2019, and we got to ask ourselves, so how are we doing in the world? How are we doing with our view of women? Okay? Well, I would say we've made progress, but even in 2019, we're not at the place God wants us to be yet. There are still countries that oppress and silence women. There are still companies that will hire a man and a woman and pay the woman less for doing the same exact job. Okay, we still haven't elected a woman president. We might next year. Who knows? I don't know. But we still haven't done that. And then here's one that hits close to home. There are very few women pastors out there, head pastors. Our denomination, our grouping of churches, was actually started by a woman, by a woman, by a woman. Okay, there's good English. It was actually started by a woman named Amy Semple McPherson way back in the early 1900s. And yet today, in our very denomination, we have less than 10% of women as lead pastors. That just kills me. That just kills me. Women are created in the very image of the living God. They reflect the attributes and, act, and the aspects, the female attributes and aspects of God, okay? So to think less of a woman is to think less of God whose image they're created in. And some churches insist on not letting women have a voice in teaching. If they do that, they're condemning themselves to only hearing half the voice of God, and that is so sad for me. Think of it this way. When men and women come together physically in this world, life is birthed, 
It's the natural state of things. Well, when men and women come together spiritually, when they come together in faith communities and they're both valued and they're both released to operate in their giftedness, life is birthed also. Spiritual life flourishes and that faith community flourishes. That's why I will always have women preach and teach and lead and have a place in this church because I don't want any of us to miss out on what God wants to show us or teach us that he can only show us or teach us through the voice and the giftedness of women. So I realize it's Father's Day, and this is so ironic, but I just want to say to you and to everybody listening online the truth of the matter, and it's this. Women rock, and we've got to understand that. Can I get an amen to that? I don't ask for that, but that is like an amen point to me, okay? It's part of the reason I chose to wear pink today, besides the fact that I just wanted to wear the shirt, okay? <laughs> well, now let's move on to a great four-letter word. This is out of Proverbs 19.16. Whoever keeps commandments keeps their life. Whoever shows contempts for their ways will die. This proverb is about this crazy four-letter word, obey, and it's so unfortunate what's happened in our culture to this word, obey, It's got such a negative view, it actually has become like a dirty word. There's kind of this mentality of obey or else. Obey or else you'll get in trouble. Obey or else you'll lose your privileges. Obey or else you'll get fired. Obey or else you won't be worthy of my love. Obey or else you might not be worthy of God's love. We can even take it to that degree. That word obey always seems to have a threat attached to it. Or for some of us, it brings to mind these these groups of mindless minions marching towards their demise because some evil warlord told them to and they didn't have the gumption to question his authority or to question the status quo. So obey seems quite negative. In religious circles, oh my gosh, the word obey is all too often used to reduce our relationship to Jesus down to a set of rules and regulations. Kind of this this attitude of, hey, you've got to obey God because God, like, like they used to believe in ancient times, is angry and unstable, and if you obey him all the time, you'll appease him. You'll make him like you. You'll make him love you somehow. That is just bad thinking, and it's so much pressure. So we've got to redeem the word obey because though it contains four letters, it's far from a dirty word, just the opposite. In the book of Deuteronomy, which is one of the first five books of the Bible, look what chapter 6 says about obey. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it will go well with you. Obedience is something that takes us to great places in our life. It's something that makes our lives go well. Remember that in the wisdom writings, too, when it says, hey, obey, you'll live, disobey, you'll die, it's not talking about literal life and death. You're already alive when you obey, okay? What it's saying is when you obey, it will lead you to more life, or you might say to a fullness of life. I want to give you a great example of this out of Matthew chapter 28. This is what's called the Great Commission, and it's Jesus talking. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So they were being obedient there. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted, as we do. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of 
of the age. This is a great story. It's called the Great Commission, and it's actually the last thing Jesus said to his friends and followers before he was beamed into heaven. So it's an important story, and it's actually a story about obedience, because early in the chapter, Jesus had, had bumped into a few of them after he'd resurrected from the grave, and he told them, given them an assignment, he said, I want you to gather up all the other cohorts, all the other gang that was following me, and all the men and all the women that were my followers, and I want you to meet me in Galilee. And they did it. They didn't have to do it, but they were obedient. They gathered everybody up, and they met him in Galilee. And look what happened as a direct result of their obedience. Their simple obedience just to show up in Galilee. First of all, their eyes were open. This story says they saw Jesus. But it's not just seeing him physically. Of course they saw him. But they saw him for who he really was, the resurrected one the Savior, the one who had power over sin and death, the one who was better and bigger and more than they could have even imagined. They saw him. Our obedience will always lead to revelation and vision. Let me say that one more time. Our obedience, even our simple acts of obedience, will always lead to revelation and vision. When you just do the simplest things that you know God wants you to do, you'll discover and see more about Jesus. Your disobedience will blind you spiritually, but your obedience will actually open your spiritual eyes. The second thing is their ears were open. Because they obeyed Jesus and showed up in Galilee, they heard Jesus say, I am with you always, which is such an important thing to hear. It is impossible to make it through life in this world without multiple times feeling isolated and alone on the planet. And quite frankly, our culture in the United States propagates loneliness. We use far more text than we actually use phone calls and hear in a real voice. We have far more meetings online where we're just, you know, connecting to people through Facebook or Instagram than we do have face-to-face meetings. I just talked with a delightful person and his wife from, his name's Freddie, and he's from Burundi, Africa. And Burundi, if you don't know where it is, it's just south of Kenya, and it's actually the poorest nation in the world right now. And he was talking about it, and it's just heartbreaking. There's a lot of genocide and wars going on and famine. And he was talking about his first trip to the United States, and he was shocked. He flew into the Denver airport. That's where he landed. And a friend of his in the United States was taking him to where he's going to stay. And he looked around, and he goes, where are all the people? There are no people here. Now, it's the Denver airport. Many of you have been there. There's people everywhere in the Denver airport. But they were all driving in cars. And so his friend goes, they're here. They're just all in the cars. He goes, oh, because in Burundi, even in a town of over a million that he lives in, everybody walks. And when they walk, they talk. He was looking around. Nobody was walking. They were all in cars. And he said most of them were alone in their cars. So to him, it seemed incredibly lazy and lonely. And I thought, oh, that's our culture, right? We isolate ourselves without even knowing it. He's right, all right? So um, back to the opening of the ears, okay? All too often we're isolated, and everybody else, we look at everybody else, and they seem to be having a great time, and our lives seem like a sad, you know, discouraging country song. And you're desperately looking for something to connect you with somebody else, to get you through this time of isolation. And the copious amounts of Ben and Jerry's that you consume just isn't doing the trick, okay? There's no relationship there. Well, there's a relationship, but it's not a super healthy one, all right? So in those moments, if we will obey, 
if we'll do the next right thing that we know God is asking us to do, what will happen is that obedience puts us in a place of nearness to Jesus. We'll be so near him, so intimate with him, we'll be able to hear him whisper to us the same words he whispered to the disciples. I am with you always. I am with you always. Martin Luther King is one of my heroes. I just, the more I get to know about him, the more I read him, the more I read some of his sermons, the more impressed I am with the individual. And at one point, he's traveling around and he's preaching the message of freedom and love and equality. And he's doing an amazing thing and he's, he's going against the current of our culture. He was just so brave. And he's at his own house one night and he gets a phone call and his wife and children were already asleep in bed. And the phone call wasn't a good one. It was a threatening one. And the voice on the other side of the line says, unless you stop preaching the message that you're preaching, I will not only have you killed, but I'll kill your family and I'll burn your house down. So he hangs up and he's got to try to go to sleep. How would you like to try to go to sleep after that phone call? That's a lot worse than a telemarketer, okay? So he's got that on his mind and he felt so alone. Because he was alone. His kids and his wife were in bed asleep. So he's already feeling alone. And then he's feeling like the whole world at that moment is against him. He felt so isolated. So he starts to pray. And he heard God speak the simplest thing to him. I wrote it down and I'll repeat it exactly how he heard God speak it to him. He heard God say this. Never alone, Martin. Never alone, Martin. I will never leave you. I will never leave you. I will never leave you alone. If you want to melt like a cube of soft butter in a frying pan emotionally tonight, Google Jason Upton. He wrote a song about that. I, 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 can't, I don't have any words, okay? I mean, I listen to him singing, and he sings a song about Martin Luther King hearing those words, I'll never leave you alone. And he sings it over and over and over. And there's times now that song is so logged into the computer of my brain that when I feel isolated and alone, I sing that song to myself, repeating that line, I will never leave you alone, Tim. I will never leave you alone, Tim. I will never leave you alone. And it gets rid of the loneliness and isolation far better than Ben and Jerry's ever can. Ben and Jerry's helps, okay? But this helps a whole lot. And third thing that happened to them when they simply showed up in Galilee is their hearts were open. Jesus tells them as they show up, go into all the world and help other people to connect to God. That's how it always goes. Our simple acts of obedience lead us to this place of intimacy with God. And in that intimacy, our hearts are cracked open and we have this newfound love and compassion for the people around us because we want them to experience God like we've experienced God. So it gets us out there. It lights a fire of passion in our life. And it gets us out there and we use our gifts and our talents and our abilities and our words and our lives and our hugs and our letters and our phone calls to help people collide into Jesus just like we have because we can't stand the idea that they wouldn't have the same kind of experiences that we would. So please don't see the word obey as negative. Don't see it as a threat, obey or else. See it as an invitation to a fuller life, 
a life where your eyes are open, your ears are open, and your heart is open. It's actually a four-letter word, but it's a great one. It's a great four-letter word. Let me pray for us today, then I'll release you to go buy some candy for your dads because they have Kit Kat bars out there, ladies and gentlemen, the best candy bars ever invented. But let's pray first, all right? God, may we here at Fifth Avenue Church be a people who give women place, position, and a voice, and most of all, value. Use us to move things forward in this area in our world, Lord. And thank you so much for the many gifted and glorious women that are part of this community. And God, may we also be a people who are willing to do the next right thing that you would have us do. And please use our simple steps and acts of obedience, Lord, to lead us into the fullness of life you want for us. You do have a killer surveillance system, Lord. You are watching over us, but it's not to make our life miserable if we disobey. It's to invite us into the life you want for us that obedience will bring us to. Thank you, Lord. You are a good, good father. We love you. In your name we pray. Everyone said? Amen. Amen.